I'm Arlen Hamilton, and this is Your First Million. I'm a venture capitalist. I started my fund Backstage Capital from the ground up while I was on food stamps. I have now invested in more than 100 companies led by women, people of color, and LGBT founders. After having raised more than $10 million, people often ask me how I did it. I created this podcast so I could tell you my story and so that together we could go on a journey and speak with some of the most successful people in the world from all backgrounds and walks of life to learn how they got their first million. And who knows, maybe I'll reach my first million in personal capital while I'm recording this series. There's only one way to find out. Let's go. Hey everyone, it is Arlen. Welcome back to your first million. I cannot wait for you all to hear this interview that I just did this week. Oh my goodness. Sophia Bush. Sophia Bush. I can't believe it. Um, been watching her her journey for decades. <laughs> That's crazy to say, but it's been almost 20 years, really. She was on One Tree Hill. She starred in One Tree Hill. She's been on um, multiple shows since and on in movies and voiceover work and just a, a constant kind of recognize her face and her name really easily. And then what I've known about her, which we'll get into in this episode, is that she has been in the tech world and, and investment world for quite a long time. And we, we know some of the same people from different worlds, like two different worlds. We know some of the same people from the music world and entertainment and then from the venture world. And so it's, it's been a, a wild ride for both of us. And we got to sit down and really talk about it and um, really get down to some serious, real, real talk. And I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Get in touch with me on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, etc. Um, Arlen was here, A-R-L-A-N was here on Instagram and Twitter. Let me know what you liked about the episode. All right. Enjoy. And the way that I think about that is, again, it's about equity. And it's like it's one thing to be an employee and make your salary and the day that your salary checks stop it's over there's another thing to be an owner there's another thing to be invested it's another thing to have an equity stake so that no matter what profit margin that thing makes you always participate in it and that that's part of what has made me think very differently about all of this stuff my name is Sophia Bush. I am an actor and an activist and a director. And occasionally I get to come and play in your world as, a, as an investor as well. There, there are a few people I know, I don't know if you can feel this, but there are a few people that I know of who kind of know people in all kinds of industries. They're kind of quietly making those moves. So I was, think, I was hearing about you years ago with really? Prisaka. Yeah. Like even but before that, it was with a mutual friend. So it was in that and Tyler Hilton, because I used to know I used to know Tyler. He was on my um magazine cover. We knew each other. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. Oh my God. I <laughs> so love I knew, that. It was like that world that because I used to be a tour manager and, and, and work with indie music and then work my way up. So I knew you from that world, knew you on TV, you were on One Tree Hill, right? Yep. And then I knew you through a mutual friend that we never got together. And then all of a sudden, when I'm learning about venture capital, 2011 to 2015, I'm seeing you talk about things with Chris Saka, you're showing up on Instagram posts, you're doing this. How did you, I mean, we're going to talk about your, your film career, your television career, but how did you get into even knowing what startups were and venture capital? Mm. I'm usually asked that question, so I can't, I can't imagine how you do it. Well, God, I, I still feel like I have so much to learn. And honestly, you're one of the people who I feel like I learn a lot from. Um, but really for me, you know, I, everybody always teases me in kind of my industry 
Cause people are like, Oh, you're not like, you're not from here. I don't know how to behave at a place like, I don't know, the golden globes. I feel completely weird the whole time. Like that's not, those spaces are not where I feel comfortable. I like to spend my time doing service work. I like to travel for conferences. And like, I was going to conferences in 2008 before they were cool. Like, you know, following Nat Geo scientists around and listening to Saka interview Branson about how you build a business that accrues, you know, corporate wealth and also care about the world. You know, they were talking about this stuff prior to the last couple of years of all of us being like the billionaires are killing the planet. So I, those were always the spaces I liked to go. And people were kind of like, why is that girl from TV here taking notes? Like she's the, like the court stenographer, like what's going on? Um, that's actually how Nia and I became best friends. She cracked a joke with me at a conference we were at and she was like, wow, did you fill up your whole notebook in that session? And I was like, do you want me to make you copies of my notes? <laughs> did, you, did they think you, did anyone ever ask you if you were studying for a part? No. I would have, that's probably what I would have gone to first. So it's just like, she must be <laughs> studying, researching for a role she's doing. Well, no, that's was, where did that come from? Do you think, was, were you always studious? Yeah. Always studious, always loved school. I still, God, all I want to do is go back to school. I've, I've got a friend, really incredible professor at Harvard. Her name is Sarah Elizabeth Lewis. She's like an incredible teacher on art and culture. And Sarah held this convening uh, last April at Harvard for three days. And I was like, this is my heaven. All I want to do is be here. I just want to take notes. How do I get to do this? Is there a world where like being a student could be your job? Because if it was, maybe I would change careers. Like I really, I really just love it. There kind of is a world where being a student is your job. And that world to me is being in being a professor. Mm. You're constantly having to re-up your game. You're constantly learning every day. I would imagine I could see you quite easily being uh, a professor at a, at a major college for sure. Oh gosh. Wow. That's a very lovely vote of confidence. I appreciate that. Yeah, I could see it. I mean, I, and it's interesting to, to, I mean, yeah, I, it's interesting to know. I mean, we don't know when those sorts of classes will come back, but mm. I mean, in this world of virtual, you can become um, a professor and a student almost anywhere now because mm-hmm. we're kind of forced to be able to do that. So mm. it's almost interesting. Like I'm, I was, I was looking at YouTube tutorials about like, I was trying to get my Peloton bike. I know this is going to sound LA, but I was trying to get my Peloton bike seat to work better. <laughs> and so I was doing all these, th- these mechanics on YouTube and my wife comes in the room and she's like, I've never seen ever seen you do something like this before. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> and I'm like, it's the Rona. I mean, I don't, <laughs> it's yeah. It forces you to, to do th- different things. Um, so let's go back a little bit. Where, where were you, where'd you grow up? I grew up here in LA. So my mom moved out here from the East Coast. God, I don't know, like maybe, I think it was like 1979, 1980. My dad had come down mid 70s from Canada. Uh, he came here to go to school. And my mom's mom had come to America from Italy through Ellis Island. My mom grew up in the Bronx. Um, And then eventually her family moved like just over the George Washington Bridge into New Jersey. And so it's like big, loud Italian family. And then my very sweet, you know, sensitive Canadian dad, who's an artist, um, they met in LA. My mom's dog always used to try to bite my dad. They, they lived in the same apartment building. And my mom was like, I don't know. She's like, your dad was like this sensitive artist guy with tight pants. He was always flipping his hair. I thought he was gay. I didn't know he was hitting on me. She like really didn't. It went like right over her head. Amazing. So thankfully, thankfully the dog like kept them talking. And yeah, I, I grew up here. I, I loved growing up in Los Angeles. I loved, I loved just how open it was, how, how diverse this place is, how 
kind of on the edge of so many cultural movements. It, it felt like it was, you know, my, my dad until he retired was a photographer. And so I grew up in a very diverse, very queer community. And when we talk about levels of privilege, you know, when women who look like me talk about how to spend their white privilege or when I've, I've read some of your interviews where you talk about what it is to spend the privilege of the capital that you've been able to acquire and how you can hand that to people and why you teach the way you do. I think there's a thing we haven't really started to talk about yet, which is the privilege of exposure. And for me as a kid, I knew about my grandmother's immigration story. I helped my dad study for his citizenship test. I understood what that stuff looked like. I grew up in Los Angeles. So I grew up listening to Tupac and I grew up going to K-Town and I grew up in Mexican communities. And that was a privilege of exposure for me to understand diversity as, as the thing that made my city its most beautiful. And when I look at our sort of current political climate, it's a thing that I wish more people had. hundred percent, hundred percent. And, and were you going to school with people, you don't have to call anybody out, but like, were you going to school with people who didn't have that same exposure to different cultures? And was it kind mm -hmm. of like a shell shock? You'd go and you'd have these conversations with them, but they wouldn't know how to relate and vice versa. Yeah. And I mean, also, you know, I can look back in hindsight and look back from the place of, of being educated the way that I am doing the work that I do, being lucky enough to be part of the communities I'm a part of. But I also am aware that like, while I was obsessed with everybody as a teenager, I didn't know how to talk about privilege when I was 16. I didn't know I had any. In hindsight, there's a lot that I can see. And I also think that it's a bit of a double-edged sword, but we moved around a lot when I was a kid. So I didn't spend a whole lot of time in any school that I was in until I hit middle school. So people talk about like, oh yeah, my friend from when I was six. And I'm like, I don't know any of those people, <laughs> but I, I was definitely able to see like if I was going to a school in the middle of Hollywood, how different that was to when we moved up to central California for two years. And I was going to the one public school in a 5,000 person town. Yeah. You know, the disparities in, in those places were, were great. But again, like I, I realize now that it just enabled me to have some perspective. I, I remember the real, the real culture shock for me having grown up here and, you know, gone to school here was when I moved to North Carolina at 21. To and I was show. like, yeah, that's where we shot One Tree Hill. And I was like, oh, oh, things are still very intense here. Yes. Like there's a whole, there's just a whole element to the South that I'd read about in books, but I'd never experienced before. And that was a really, that was a shocking Thing to to witness as a young person I can imagine I mean it almost I mean I grew up in Texas I was born in Mississippi my mom mm. lived in Jackson Mississippi for her uh formative years in the 50s you can imagine wow wow uh but almost uh you know hearing you talk about this and talk about the other kind of privilege of of learning different things it kind of makes me even more so empathetic to racist <laughs> you know i mean hear hear me out <laughs> I, and i don't mean i don't mean that to mean that i think that it's okay for them to be that way or any of that um and tony tony morrison says it's a disease that is not her problem and i totally understand mm. that part too but if people if it's uh, nurture versus nature and people have only been exposed to one thing and they only think because their parents and their environment, where mm. they were born, where they they haven't been outside of a 20 mile radius, et cetera, et cetera, which happens a lot in the South. If mm. they think this is the way it is supposed to be and this is the way it is, I think the older I get, the more I understand that I understand how they could end up that way. I don't mm -hmm. condone it. <laughs> I don't like it, but I can understand. You see that with people who were once white nationalists 
who who turn around because they've been exposed mm. to one person who can like show them the light and say, you know, there's a whole other world out here, right? This isn't it. And they turn around because their their mm-hmm. base instinct is to do that. I, I just it just kind of reminded me of of that uh, a little bit just because um, and it may be again be the Rona I'm talking. It's it could be that I'm just I feel a lot of compassion, a lot of compassion in general, and even more so uh, these days. So, but let's talk a little bit about going to North Carolina and why you did. So you're, you're living mm-hmm. in LA, you're kind of living your best life. You're learning a lot. You, yeah, I was in college. You were in, so you went to college. Yeah, I went to USC. I actually, I went for the BFA theater program and then was like, oh, I don't know about this. Like I love storytelling, but also my brain is bored And so I transferred into the journalism school and I was studying journalism and political science. And then I, I was also auditioning and working like in the summers and stuff. And but I'm curious about why you even went to a school to study acting to begin with. Was it just growing up in LA, you saw it or did you get discovered at a mall or, you know, how did it, how did that work? No, honestly, I had no desire. I wanted to be a cardiovascular surgeon. I was on a pre-med track. I was really, I mean, obsessed. I would ask my biology teacher, Mr. Hallman, if when we were doing dissections in class, I could stay through lunch and do extra, extra portions. I was really, that's where I wanted to be. And I had an arts requirement in middle school. The school that I went to made you do a different arts focus every semester which was awesome because you got exposed to things you normally wouldn't have. And especially like what 12 year old is like, I'm going to study ceramics. Like nobody (laughs) cares. Um, And so I put off the theater requirement until the end. I have this friend that I've been friends with since I was 12. My friend Betsy, she's unbelievable. She has like a voice, like an angel. She's a performer. She's like a theater person. But, you know, when we were little, she was like singing show tunes in the hall at school. And I was like, I love you, but also we're not the same. Like, I don't know any show tunes. I've never seen any Broadway. And this is the same Betsy I know. I don't know. We'll talk about LA is weird. But (laughs) so I didn't think theater was for me. And then I had to do this play. And it was this crazy moment where something clicked in my brain. And I realized my very favorite subject at school was English And these were essentially all my favorite books, but we could be characters in them. Mm. And it was, it was crazy. I was like, I don't know. It was like nerdy cosplay or something. Wait, let's go back. Let's go back say that again. You got into acting because you love reading. Mm -hmm. Say that again, because I think that's really interesting. I've never heard that. Yeah, because really acting is the bringing to life of a story on a page. And you have to figure out how to take these words that are just ink on paper and make them into a whole life and into a person with feelings and emotions who cries at certain things and is angry about other things. And, and in this experience of doing this play, I realized that these were books come to life and it, w- it rocked my world. So then I, I did theater all through high school and my parents were like, cool. She has an extracurricular she loves. And also I have asthma. And they were like, babe, you were never going to be a track star. So like, awesome. You figured out a thing to do that doesn't require you to run. This is great. And then my near the end of my junior year, my senior year, everything was kind of changing. And I, I said to my parents, I was like, I, I want to go to school for this. And they were not stoked. And my mom, you know, my dad's a photographer. And my mom told me many years later, she looked at my dad and she was like, this is all your fault. You made your hobby into your career. And now she thinks she can do it too. You know, it was like, she was so scared. And my dad said to my mom, he goes, honey, she's so smart. She's going to be so bored. Give it a year and she'll go to medical school. And then I gave it a year. And then I, <laughs> I left the theater department and went to journalism school instead. That's so they a, weren't like totally, you know, they weren't totally far off. But that, that was sort of what caused the whole thing. And, and then, yeah, being in LA, I was, I was out auditioning. I was like, I, I got to get to work. I've always been a little bit of a workaholic. So I was like, yeah, I mean, yes, I'm in school, but obviously I should also have a job. And, and then when I booked this show, I had to pick up and move my whole life um, and move to Wilmington, North Carolina. And, you know, I went from being a college kid who was planning philanthropy events at USC to, 
having to be on a set 18 hours a day and like learn how to work with a, with a DP, a director of photography and find light and hit marks and do all this technical stuff. And I was like, this is insane. Nobody, nobody tells you how technical and hard and weird it is. Can I make a suggestion? Maybe yeah. I've already done it. Why don't you do an online course about that for aspiring actors? Ooh. I mean, just real technical, break it down, boom, boom, boom. What to expect when you go to that? Because that would be really interesting. I know Jenna uh, Fisher did a great book about acting in general. She broke down some things that were really interesting. I'm not an actor, but I read it because I like to read. Um, but I could see you doing like a video course, either yeah. live and recording. I'm, I'm dabbling in that myself. So that's why it's on the mind. And you could just break it down for people. And I think, I mean, it sounds like it was a crash course for you. Hope you enjoying this episode. Wanted to break in for a second and let you know about a brand new online academy that I have launched. It's called How to Raise Capital for Your Company from Scratch. I know I got your attention. <laughs> well, just think about it. I have raised more than $10 million. I've earned a few million dollars. I've seen thousands and thousands of companies and their pitches and all of that. I've invested in more than 130 of those all in the last five years. So there's a lot of information I have that definitely share a lot of it for free. Definitely get it out there on a daily basis. So if you enjoy any of that content, if that has been helpful to you at all, you're going to like this. This is where I put it all together in the same place. It's been such an honor and a joy putting this course and this academy together for you. I want you to check it out. I want you to be able to get started on it right away. So we're going to take a little bit of a barrier down for you. I'm going to do it right here, right now. Here's the code to get a huge discount off of the regular price. Use code YOURFIRSTMILLION and you get a huge chunk taken out of that price. It's going to save you and earn you thousands of dollars if you read everything, watch everything, listen to everything. And uh, I know that value is going to be there for you. Before you even take the course, before you even sign up for it, before you put a dollar down, here's what I want you to do. Go to the website, go to itsaboutdamntime.com, click on Arlen's Academy, Check out the, the curriculum and all the information for sure. But before you make your decision, scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page. Click on the flow chart that I created for you. Yes, I created a flow chart. I know. <laughs> I really had a lot of fun doing it. It took me hours. Okay. Uh, click, on, uh, click on the flow chart and check it out. See if it's right for you. And then once you make the decision to buy in, I've got the hookup for you. Your first million is the code. The flow chart will help you get there. And yeah, the course itself, people are already taking it. People are already giving me crazy feedback. It's already helping people. Like people are already saving money because of the first part of the course. So let's do it. Let's go. I mean, I'm, I imagine you were excited to get the gig and you had a major role in the show and a very yeah. popular show. Do you remember that process? Do you remember, was it, did it take a long time for them to decide on you or what was that like? Yeah. I mean, God, the process was crazy and the process is always crazy. And, you know, everybody from the outside, it looks like you book a job and you get successful and nobody sees the hundreds or thousands of auditions you go on and someone tells you you're too tall or too short or too brunette or not brunette enough or whatever. I mean, it's, it's a really crazy process industry. Yeah. And, and process to try to, to try to get in the door. And then I remember I, I read for the show <laughs> and like, how dare they? I don't think anyone could say this to you in today's times, but and the irony being, I remember what I wore. I wore this, it was almost like a Henley, but like a t-shirt. It was sort of fuchsia. It had buttons here on the chest, short sleeves. And I wore this little like kind of white pleated skirt 
and these cute shoes. Cause this girl is like, you know, the head of the cheer squad and all, all <laughs> these things that she is, whatever. And, uh, but it's like a mini skirt and a tight t-shirt. And I was 21. Like if only I had known what I looked like, I had no idea. And the, the feedback from my eventual boss was like, yeah, we like her. We don't think she's sexy enough. So oh, I was really? like, I was like, I don't know what that means. Like what, what isn't like, so I went, so when I went back for the next audition, I, instead of wearing a t-shirt, I wore a tank top. And instead of wearing a skirt that hit my mid thigh, I wore a mini skirt. I was like, I mean, okay, I guess they want to like, they want her to be like bolder and I may not be super comfortable with that, but okay. And then they were like, no, no, wait, way too sexy. Like this, this was how it was to audition for a room full of men as a 21 year old. So then the, yeah. So it was like the first audition for the bosses. And then it was the callback for the producers. And then it was the network test. And there was a woman working at the then WB and I brought outfits. I brought three options with me. And I was like, what should I wear? And we settled on a different pleated skirt and a different t-shirt, but it was a t-shirt with a V-neck. And it was like, God, it was so insane. And then, yeah, they, they came out and said, do you want to move to North Carolina in 12 days? <laughs> and I, that was kind of it. And that's one of the things nobody really talks about in our industry either. Everyone assumes, because the only things that really get televised are like what, I don't know, the Golden Globes and the Oscars. Everyone thinks that like actors are just hanging out in LA in really expensive borrowed clothes and jewelry, like drinking champagne. Right. <laughs> it always makes me laugh because I'm like, those are two nights a year. And I promise you the rest of the time we're off in some random city far away from our families. I'm always missing my mom's birthday. And like, you know, you're on hour 17 on a set with no air conditioning and you're trying to not have your eyeliner melt off. Yeah. And That's I love it, but it's also crazy. It's crazy. It's a crazy thing that we do. And you were going to this show, not knowing if it was picked up yet. Was it just to film the pilot or had it already been picked up? So the show had been picked up. And we, we all went out to work. The, the pilot had been done in April. We all went out to work in, I think it was August actually that year. And then we were going to start airing in January. We were a mid-season show. And then some show they were shooting wasn't working. And they pulled us up to a fall release. So it was this crazy scrambling of making the show. So we were doing these 18-hour days and we would shoot on Sundays. Sundays were our Mondays because we needed the high school gym. We needed the Michael Jordan gym at the Wilmington High School. So we would film basketball first day of the week on Sunday. And those were such big days that we would usually shoot a basketball day for 18 hours. And there's a thing in our industry called turnaround where people have to be allowed to go home for a certain number of hours, even though when you get home, you got to learn 10 pages of dialogue for the next day and whatever. Mm -hmm. So with the turnarounds pushing call times later and later through the week, because we were doing these 18, 17, 16, 18 hour days by Friday, like Sunday morning, you'd go to work at 5 a.m. And by Friday, you'd be going to work at 5 p.m. And you'd shoot until 6 or 7 a.m. on Saturday. And it was, or by Thursday into Friday. And then, yeah, Friday and Saturdays were our weekends. So you'd, you'd get off work at 6 a.m., 7 a.m. on Friday morning, have to go home and figure out how to sleep, try to get up at a reasonable time so you'd go to bed early on Saturday because on Sunday you'd be waking up at 4.30 in the morning to go to work. Wow. How long, I mean, it's a blessing and curse actually, you know, but how many <laughs> years of this, how many years of the show did you do? Uh, we did nine seasons. Nine seasons. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot of places I can go with that. Um, <laughs> so from 21, so all of your 20s, you were mm -hmm. on the show. And I imagine it was, uh, a lot of it was exciting because it was, I remember it being very popular, very fast. And uh, was it a spinoff of Gilmore Girls or did I imagine no. that? No, mm -hmm. it wasn't. Okay. They, they were, they were just all kind of similar era. It was like Dawson's Creek came first and then Gilmore Girls and then us. And we all kind of came up together a little bit. Yeah. Same vibes. Okay. So this podcast is about your first million. So we're not going to get too deep into your bank account. It's not what we're trying to do here. But would you say that you made your first million on One Tree Hill? Eventually. 
you know, that that's another thing where people were like, oh my God, you did a TV show for nine years. Like you must be set. And I'm like, let me tell you what, when you have zero credits to your name and you get signed to a six year deal, you don't make any money for the first six years. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so you're, you're playing some catch up. But even as I say that, it's like, what a relative thing to say, because I still had the immense privilege of doing the thing I love to do the most and paying my bills with it. And, you know, having had every shitty job in college, like, let me tell you what, I'd rather, I'd rather make not a lot of money as an actor than like be working the retail job I used to have. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, <laughs> but you, you took the, what, what you did make and mm-hmm. kind of, it seems like what you've now done is said, let me take that as the seed. Yeah. And let me, let me grow that, which I think is so interesting. That's always where I get the most excited about stories is like mm-hmm. you, you do the thing. People are known for the thing, whatever that may be, but it's mm-hmm. about multiple revenue streams. It's about, yep. Um, compounding that to something mm-hmm. else. And, and, and you don't have to be that way, but a lot of people mm-hmm. that I really enjoy watching their story, that's what they're doing. So is that how you mm-hmm. thought about it? Or like when w- the context of having that gig, having kind of the ability to kind of go places now, mm-hmm. you can get into certain rooms, et cetera, et cetera. Did you want to take that and kickstart something else when it came to startups or, or investing or anything like that? You know, it's interesting. It, it wasn't a world I'd ever seen. You know, the world of startups, that stuff sort of came by accident for me out of these conference spaces, out of cultivating this incredible group of friends. And, and a lot of the guys in my friend group were working and investing in the Valley. The guys. And, I, and, and a testament to like a good, you know, when you have good friends and good allies, my buddy Ido, who runs some enormous companies, said, you know, ha- has it occurred to you over the last two years? He said, how many of us come to you for advice? How many of us ask you if something is cool? How many of us call you up and say, will you look at this project? Give us, give us your opinion. He said, you have a natural inclination for this, but what isn't naturally happening is it isn't turning into anything for you. He said, so I'm going to start bringing you the opportunity to invest in things. And my first investment happened because of a founder, a female founder in the Valley that he introduced me to. My second investment happened um, because of Saka and another buddy of ours who got me in on a B round of a company with like, by the way, all that was left in it was a 10K allocation. Like it wasn't anything serious, but it put me in the space. And, you know, if I could go back, I would have fought for, for more money to invest in that. But I was really lucky because people recognized my natural ability to identify what seemed cool and innovative because that's what I have to do in my career. And they said, put, put some of this brain power this way, like put, put some skin in the game here. And there have been some things I've invested in that weren't great. And there have been some things I've invested in that I'm so immensely proud to have helped fund in the beginning. and. It's a gamble, but as far as a person who, you know, hasn't spent a ton of time studying books on this stuff, like I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty okay on the instinct. You're doing it because it is, a lot of it is instinct. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is network. A lot of it is opportun- putting yourself in the right opportunity. So you had these mm-hmm. different things going for you that you then said, let me put the elbow grease into it. Mm-hmm. and make it work for me. And I'm, re- I'm grateful to your friend for recognizing that because it, it doesn't happen. I, I remember um, helping a company with a raise early, early on um, that was not underrepresented <laughs> and realizing that I was on the sidelines. I was not going to mm-hmm. get, I mean, they're worth hundreds of millions of dollars today and I have zero interest in them. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember thinking at the time, I don't know much about this world, but I know I probably should have something here, <laughs> mm-hmm. but you know, it, it didn't work out that way. So that's when I said, no, I'm going to, I'm absolutely going to, um, get, be part of this. I was just going to say, I've seen that happen to so many women. Yes. One of my best friends helped to build a company that when I tell you, if I, I will tell you later what it is, but I will not on the air, Yeah. but the size and scope of the thing that she helped to build 
and she has no equity in it. Mm. And I'm just pissed. I'm still pissed about it. And, and I've seen that for us over and over and over again. And even, you know, again, to bring it back to my industry, there's this misconception that if you do a show like I did, you can live on that forever. Mm. And people are like, well, you know, One Tree Hill's still on and it's on Netflix and it's here, there and the other. And I'm like, yeah. And my boss who has like two Aston Martins makes money on that. We don't make any money on that ever anymore. Like if that, if that show is airing on a streaming service, the actors don't participate. And the way that I think about that is again, it's about equity. And it's like, it's one thing to be an employee and make your salary. And the day that your salary checks stop, it's over. There's another thing to be an owner. There's another thing to be invested. It's another thing to have an equity stake so that no matter what profit margin that thing makes, you always participate in it. And that that's part of what has made me think very differently about all of this stuff. Yeah. When do you think you discovered that? I mean, I think it was sort of increasing levels of awareness. I think when we started understanding disparity, you know, again, being newer actors to the scene and then having a show, hearing what like guest stars were making on ABC versus regulars on an affiliate network like the WB, hearing and sometimes seeing, like you see when your boss buys some insane sports car and you're like, how, how though, you know, you, 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 you just start, you start really understanding that not everybody's participating in the same way in this thing, but everyone's putting in the same amount of work to get it done. So when you go and look at new pro- projects that are, that are media projects, mm-hmm. A, I'm, I'm assuming you really take a close look at your contracts. And B, do you do things like produce or try to have that kind mm-hmm. of those points from that? Definitely. And, and, you know, that's very tricky. And there's a lot of ways in which the system is always designed to kind of let as few people touch the, you know, touch the, the cookie in the middle as possible. <laughs> and so there's also spaces where you have to be flexible. And it's like, I, I developed a pilot last year. I was a producer on it. It was amazing. And ultimately, you know, the feedback was, this is too smart for network. We love it, but like it belongs on a streamer, but then there wasn't a streaming home for it. And that's just kind of what happens. And this new pilot that I've signed on to, because I didn't develop it, they're like, well, you didn't develop it. So you're not producing. And so my whole, my whole thing was, let's do our show. Let's get our show picked up and watch me for the first year. And then I want my producing credit and my points in year two. Cause I promise you, I will produce the fuck out of this show for you. Yeah. And in, and in a way, you know, who taught me that is Chris Saka. He said to me years ago, he said, prove your value before you ask for it. Cause then you don't have to ask. Mm-hmm. And that I love. I'm just like, let me show up and show you how good at this I am. Yeah. And, and, and we'll, and we'll revisit the conversation. And, you know, that's a thing I have to be clear enough on what my value add is. And also always, always, always in touch with my humility enough not to think like, well, look how long I've been in this industry and look at the da, 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 da. I deserve this. It's like, nobody deserves anything. Right. You can prove you're worth it, but you can't assume you deserve it. Yeah, we had, uh, I had uh, Jamila Jamil on a few weeks ago and she was like, she's like, I'm not going to go in and ask Ted Danson what he's making because that's none of my business, but it's surely my business, what the guy next to me is making. And I'm going to fight for that, you know, Mm -hmm. so it's it's very much in the same vein for sure. And I love that. I mean, you know, the book is called, it's about damn time. And it Mm -hmm. reminds me, it's like, it is, it is about, it's like, I love that there are people like you and Jamila and so many other people who are just you're fed up. Like you're not going to take the crumbs anymore. You came for Mm -hmm. the cake, not the crumbs. Right. Mm -hmm. I love that you say that's one of my favorite things in all the stuff I've read. There was a, it was the LA times article that started that way. Okay. That was like, Arlen is not here for the crumbs. She came for the cake. And I was like, yeah. 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 No, it's something (laughs) it's, yeah, it's a, it's a rap song that I heard a long time ago and I don't, I can't, haven't been able to find it. I walked into my co-working office a few years ago that um, uh, my friend and co-worker Brian was decorating and it was a picture of me and I came for the cake, not the crumbs. 
And I was like, yes, because <laughs> I had yes. said it enough. <laughs> I love it so much. I do want to talk a little bit just to kind of wrap up mm-hmm. about what you, you do currently that is, I mean, you talk about producing, about acting. I know you're on a show now, right? Chicago. No, not anymore. I left that show. Okay. Um, I'm not, I'm not up to date on things. <laughs> no, no, totally fine. I, uh, yeah, I just realized I was in an environment that wasn't good for me. And I was like, I don't need to be here. So I quit my job, um, which was also kind of like a power move. I was like, I'm a fucking lady boss. Look at me quitting a yeah, job. And, that, and you were kind of leading that show, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you were the only one I recognized when I saw the commercials mm-hmm. and you were like, no, and you bounced. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Cause you I just, bounced? you know, what your value is, you know what you're yeah. worth. How important yeah. is that for listeners? no matter what kind of comp- company or uh, employment they have, well, how important is it to know your value? It's so important. And I get that it's hard. You know, I'm not going to act like I just had it all figured out. I should have quit two years before I did. It was a long, hard process to get to the point where I had the courage to leap like that. But we have to sleep in our bodies at night. You know, we are the only home we're ever really going to have. And for me, that experience made it so clear that we all deserve and have to fight to feel safe, you know, in our bodies, in our personhood, in our spaces. And over and over and over again, things have come to me and I have learned about how to show up for people, how to advocate alongside people that we are all so in this together, you know, as the famous adage goes, our liberty is bound together. If something happens to you, it's happening to me. And anybody who doesn't get that, I don't understand. And my experience there was just another proving ground of how true that is. Mm. And it was also a clarifier for me because I realized, oh, there's a lot more at stake here in the minds of other people about their jobs than about what's right. And that's okay. To your point about compassion earlier, I don't actually hold that against anybody. I get it. But for me, it was an impossibility to not be in a space where I would be protected or advocated for in the ways that I protect and advocate for people in that space. Mm. And so that was really about recognizing as you said, my worth, and then also recognizing my contribution and realizing that neither of those things was being lined up with in an appropriate manner. Mm. And then I just said, I can, I can get a check somewhere else. I'll figure it out, but it doesn't need to be here. Yeah. Isn't it funny how knowing what having money, but knowing what not having money feels like Mm-hmm. How, how empowering that can be. Mm-hmm. Like make it, you know, you can survive it. You have control over that. You can survive that. Mm-hmm. I've just found that to be so empowering the whole time. What are you, what are you working on now then? What now mm-hmm. and then in the near future, what are, what are the things that are exciting to you? Well, talk about full circle. So obviously to your point, like the Rona has ruined everything. And we were four days away from starting to film my new show And then we all had to go home and I'm like, look, all I want is for people to stay home and stay safe. And also just deeply in me because of how excited I am about this project. I'm like, but when do we get to go back to work? (laughs) Um, Like I'll wait, but also when, and I know the whole world feels like that in one way or another. Um, But the show, ironically, two of my favorite women in Hollywood, writers, producers, Jenny Ehrman and Katie Wesh wrote this unbelievable show called Good Sam. It's like, literally, it's my Grey's Anatomy. Wow. And I play Sam. And the thing I love so much about it is women make up less than 3% of cardiothoracic surgeons. It's the most competitive field to get into. I wanted to be a cardiovascular surgeon and I've literally been hired to play one. I have been scrubbing in on open heart surgeries to prepare for this job the, the doctors who I shadow are like, how do you know all this? And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm asking questions the whole time. I'm just like up in, up in these surgeries, living my best life. And 
I'm so excited. And I love that the central relationship in this show is not this woman trying to figure out her dating life. It's this woman trying to unpack and deal with what her inherited trauma is from her complicated relationship with her father. Mm. And, and it's, it's so smart. It's so cool. It's quirky. It's funny. And I can't wait to go to work. I just can't wait. Yeah. I mean, it sounds amazing. And I love how you just kind of casually said, I'm scrubbing into surgeries. Yeah. (laughs) Just so cash. Oh, it's like my dream. Do you know at all, like when people are going to be able, like when people are thinking they're going to go back to recording, are you kind of just like everybody else just waiting to see? Uh, I mean, I'm on a wait and see. I truly don't imagine, especially because, you know, I've always joked and it feels weird now, but that sets are like Petri dishes. You're just, you're in these closed spaces. One person has a cold. Everybody gets a cold. It's always, everybody's always sick on set. I can't imagine that we're going to be going back to work before August, like on a set. I can't imagine. I don't know. I, I've been talking actually to a, a, a VC who I know, and he was telling me that he's working with a company right now that is trying to rush the production on these little test kits where you, you do a mouth swab and you literally get a five minute result for Corona. And so the idea would be that if we could deploy those to studios, the everybody cast crew show up, get swabbed, get tested. And if you test positive, you can't go on the soundstage. Mm -hmm. But what happens if one of the people who tests positive one day who didn't the day before is a person who has to be on camera. Like, how do you shoot the episode? So none of us know what this means. We don't even know if these things are going to be available, by the way. And if they are, I would like to just asterisk that like, clearly they should be available to hospitals first. Like we can wait to make fucking TV shows. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people working on it, but I think it's by the fall, there'll be something. I really hope so. Yeah. I'm dying to go back to work. And I also am more than happy to wait. It's worth the wait. You know, it's, it's why I've really taken some time to find the next show because I wanted it to be this good. And yeah. And so we'll just, we'll see. Obviously my hope is that this thing doesn't disrupt everything so much that like we stop making TV shows, knock on wood, like knock on my head, God forbid. But again, I know that we're all in this together and, and my, my kind of way of coping with my stress over my personal unknowns is to figure out how to serve people whose unknowns are greater than my own. So my friends and I have been raising money for frontline foods. We've been sending meals to ERs and ICUs around LA. I'm like cooking chicken soup for my UPS guy. Like when I'm like, what's going to happen? My response has become, well, I don't know the answer, but I know what I can do for someone in the meantime. And that feels like a way to put better energy out around this than just to sit at home and cry, which I did for the whole first week. I just looked at the news and cried every day. And then I was like, all right, I'm going to get my, I'm going to get up. I'm going to get on the treadmill. I'm going to like try to be productive. I'm going to make some soup for JP. Word. You know what I did? It was so weird. I was already crying, (laughs) but I forced myself to watch a video of a guy seeing color for the first time over and over again that I know makes me cry. (laughs) It was like, I needed to get it out so that I could just move. <laughs> Have you seen the video of the baby who gets his hearing aids and oh, hears his mom's God. voice for the first time? Yes. We, I just learned that we cope in the same ways. <laughs> just on purpose. And last night, last night I tweeted about this. I was lying in bed. I had to wake up very early this morning. So I was like, I'm going to go to bed early. I'm going to be whatever. I was lying in bed. And for two hours, I couldn't go to sleep. And I, for like 30 minutes of that, I was just thinking about the backstory of Shirley Baker and that scene of her learning that she's on the Rockford Peaches in A League of Their Own. And you know what I'm talking about? Did you? <laughs> yeah. And I was just thinking about, I wonder what her backstory was. <laughs> for like 30 minutes. Oh my God. <laughs> because that scene makes me cry every time too. And I was just like, it's so weird. <laughs> I get it though. Like we just, I, I think because I'm really missing my coworkers and my set. Cause we spent, you know, two weeks in pre-production, all of us together. It hit me last night. I'm on season three, episode 15. And I was like, Oh, this is why I'm rewatching Grey's Anatomy from the beginning. Mm. Cause I'm, I'm missing the set of my medical show. 
let me tell you what, Grey's Anatomy is a tearjerker. Like, Denny, bye. Like, it, it's just, <laughs> I can't. I was like, do you know oh, Ellen Pompeo? God. I don't actually know her. No, we met okay. once and she was so nice to me. Yeah, she was. I, don't... I, I did an interview with her around mm. December. And she's just the like so nice, so real. I, listen to that episode if you haven't listened to it. She okay. tells the Robert De Niro story. Very cool. Probably very oh. relatable. Um, for for One Tree Hill, etc. We'll have to make sure that you meet each other and talk to each other. I would love that. Yeah, God, she's so, so cool. cool. I'll make sure that we send this episode to her and then make the introduction. Okay. okay. I'm going to let you go. I have thoroughly enjoyed this. I'm so glad Me that, too. you know, everything happens for a reason in, in the right time. And I think that's proven by you leaving your last show and finding the perfect show for you. I'm so happy for you. And I Thank know that you. even if it takes a year or so to get it going again, it's going to be the right time for you. So it's exciting. Mm. It's the right time for us to have this conversation after yes. all these years. And I really, I really appreciate you being on, on your first million. It's just, uh, I've been, I've been hoping for this moment for a very long time. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm so happy we're connected and now you're never going to be able to get rid of me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I'll hold you to it. Awesome. Right. Okay, cool. Thank you so much. Hey, it's Arlen. Thanks for listening to this episode. So I would love to keep up with you online. You can find me at Arlen Was Here on Instagram and on Twitter. That's A-R-L-A-N Was Here. I cannot wait to continue this conversation with you. You can also pre-order my first book. It's called It's About Damn Time. You can pre-order it at your local indie bookstore. Please do that. Feel free. And online where books are sold, where, where, where great books are sold. If you want to go to a specific link, you can go to itsaboutdamntime.com. That's itsaboutdamntime.com. Your First Million is produced by Anna Aichinawa, executive producer Arlen Hamilton, associate producer Chacho Valadez. 